0: Okay, page 748, and it's Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 50. <clears throat> now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body then he took it down wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock one in which no one had yet been laid it was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment chapter 24 on the first day of the week very early in the morning the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and when they entered they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus while they were wondering about this suddenly and on the third day be raised again then they remembered his words when they came back from the tomb they told all these things to the eleven and to the others it was mary magdalene joanna mary the mother of james and the others with them who told this to the apostles but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense peter how however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened.
1: Gracious Father, we want to thank you for uh, the word of God that you've given to us. And uh, we pray now that you would help us to see new things we haven't seen before, be reminded of uh, those things which we've learnt before but most of all, that we would be challenged to put Jesus' as first in our lives, and we pray in His name, Amen.. Uh, this might be helpful for me to have. copy of the Bible. This is the book <laughs> that tells of the world that was ruined by sin and so on. Um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, bit of talk this over these past few days in the media about uh, about resurrection. Uh, this morning's Sydney Morning Herald editorial spoke about resurrection and the meaning of uh, resurrection at Easter, and started by saying, "Well, there's not too many of us these days who are religious, so we'll just make up our own meaning for Easter and resurrection." And uh, they said, "It's all about uh, re." vitalisation of uh, of Australian politics and uh, then proceeded to say that the Prime Minister really needed to get his act together and be regenerated. It's profound, isn't it? You'll all go home and read it, I'm sure. Um, Another article I read during the week in the uh, online uh, magazine called The Conversation, a little bit more classy than the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, they had a uh, an opinion piece written by a theologian and uh, she said that the take-home message for Christians uh, this Easter is that uh, Christians need to pray for the resurrection of the church. Uh, She said that uh, numbers are in free fall and uh, denominations are crumbling and so Easter is about resurrecting the church. Again, profound, isn't it? (laughs) A a far less fuzzy opinion, though, came in the media from a source about three years ago, and it was a surprising source. It was from the Festival of Dangerous Ideas that was hosted at the Sydney Opera House and was broadcast on ABC television. They had a panel of people, and Tony Jones was the host, as usual. One of the panellists was Peter Hitchens, Peter Hitchens being the brother of the Uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, who was one of the most prominent atheists of our time, and the final question for the night went like this, and I quote, which so-called dangerous idea do you think each would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? Unquote. Uh, One of the panelists said, "Uh, I need time to think about that, I'll pass. Another panelist Uh, said that population control through mandatory abortion, that was a dangerous idea that should be implemented. Um, Germaine Greer nominated the, the freedom of the individual to make choices. That's a dangerous idea. But listen to Peter Hitchens, and I quote, he said, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead, That is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. That's very different from the warm fuzzies of the Easter editorials in the newspapers, isn't it? Nothing fuzzy about that at all, but what does it mean? The death and the resurrection of Jesus is a dangerous idea. In what sense is it a dangerous idea? And who or what is endangered by these two great truths of Easter? That's what we're going to look at this morning. uh, And uh, we're going to be looking at from uh, Luke chapter 23 that we started looking at on Friday as we uh, celebrated Good Good Friday. Uh, But before we get into the implications as to why the Easter events are so dangerous, it would be good for us to uh, look again afresh at the account of uh, the resurrection that we see in uh, Luke chapter 23. And of course, on Good Friday, A couple of days ago now, we remembered that Jesus died on the cross. uh, That he truly died on the cross. That he really died on the cross. Uh, In verse 46 of uh, Luke chapter 23, we, we read that Jesus gave up his spirit and that he breathed his last. He was dead, he died on the cross. Now, in the uh, tradition of the Jews, when a person died, their body was uh, was washed, it was anointed with oil, it was wrapped in linen, and uh, that linen had spices and perfumes enclosed in it uh, for the sake of the decaying body. And we read about some of that, don't we, in verses 50 through to 56, where we're introduced to a man by the name of Joseph. He was from a place called Arimathea. And uh, Joseph was an interesting man, he was a wealthy man, he was a man who was in fact on the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish ruling council, the council that actually uh, had Jesus arrested. Uh, He didn't consent to this because he was actually, secretly, he was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And in the verse, uh, uh, we we, we see here that uh, Joseph, this wealthy man, this disciple of Jesus, he arranged for Jesus to be buried, but to be buried in the tomb which he had prepared for himself. And a tomb in those days wasn't like a mausoleum, wasn't like a building, it was, was, a, was, was cut into, into a rock. And uh, in verse 53, we read that uh, although the body had been wrapped in the linen, that uh, there was no time for them to have organised for the spices and the, and the perfumes, And the reason for that was because it was the Passover. And the next day, the Saturday, uh, beginning at uh, nightfall on the Friday, was the the Sabbath. And so uh, they needed to get Jesus buried quickly because if they were to handle his body uh, on the Sabbath, uh, that would be unclean and it would be working on the Sabbath. And so... uh, the scene is now set for some women to return to the, to the tomb on the day after the Sabbath in order to complete the, the job of uh, uh, the, the spices and the perfumes and so on. Now, mind you, getting into the tomb was going to be somewhat of a challenge. And the reason I say that is because in actual fact, the idea of resurrection was something which the Jewish religious authorities also thought was a very dangerous idea. Uh, In in fact, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 27, it, it was the Jewish religious authorities that they remembered what Jesus had said earlier on. They remembered that Jesus had said that he would die and that on the third day, that he would rise again from the dead. And they saw this, they didn't believe it would happen. <laughs> they thought, that's, that's nonsense. But if word got around that Jesus had been risen from the dead, then that was very dangerous because it threatened their whole, their whole world, their whole status, their prestige. Lots of things would be turned upside down if people came to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so out of their concern, and they were concerned that the disciples might actually go there in the night and steal the body and claim resurrection. And so this would be uncharted territory for them. They were very concerned about it. A dangerous idea could could be spread. Uh, They went to the Roman governor, And the Roman governor allowed them to secure the tomb and the way that the tomb was secured was that there was a a large uh, disc-type rock that was rolled into place over the entrance to the tomb and uh, he allowed for that to be sealed so that no one could get in and just for good measure, uh, he had posted two Roman guards to make sure that no one was getting into that tomb and definitely no one was getting out of that tomb. But That's not actually how it all panned out. Have a look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 24. Let me read those for you. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They didn't find him. He wasn't there. Now, a Jesus' tomb was, uh, would have been small. It would have been six or seven foot square uh, with a small entrance room. Uh, but as the women crept inside the tomb, instead of finding the body of Jesus, what they found was, and, and they were startled by it because they saw two men whose clothes were gleaming white like lightning these were angels these were messengers from god and the words that these angels spoke to the women would change their lives forever why do you look for the living among the dead he is not here he is risen now of course uh, this should not have been any great surprise to the women Jewish religious authorities had remembered what Jesus had said would happen. Uh, it, it ought, they ought to have known this. Take a look at verse uh, 6 to 8. In verse 6, uh, the angel said, Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And it was then... That they remembered these words now notice how jesus described himself uh, he, he referred to himself as being the son of man this is really really important this is not just a, a nickname that he had for himself this is actually something which is grounded in the old testament and the expectations which the old testament uh, provided uh, we find it in the book of daniel i just wonder if you Could put a bulletin or something rather in Luke 24. And why don't we flip back to Daniel for a moment? You find it on page 631 in those uh, red Bibles. So this, of course, is written a long time before the Lord Jesus. And uh, Daniel, a Jewish man, is in exile in Babylon. And he has a has a vision, he has a dream. And this is what he saw in his vision. Pick it up in verse 13. He says, in my... Have everyone got that, by the way? I'll just give you a moment or two longer. Chapter 7 of Daniel, page 631, verse 13. Okay, let's go. Uh, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a... What does it say? Son of man. Coming... With the clouds of heaven. Now he's looking at it from heaven, and it's, so the Son of Man is coming up uh, into heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom. Is one that will never be destroyed. How about that, eh? How about that? This, this is, this is the, this is the hope that the Old Testament pushes us towards. This is the hope of that which all of God's promises point towards. Uh, it's the hope of the, of the Son of Man uh, ra- rising and going to be with. The ancient of days, God the Father, and establishing a kingdom which is an everlasting communion, a, a, a kingdom which is a heavenly kingdom. Now we learnt on Good Friday that the death of Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. You see, we cannot we mustn't think of the of the death and the resurrection of Jesus as being two separate events. They're not. They are two parts of the one event. And and so when we learnt about the death of Jesus on the cross on Friday, we learnt that by his death that he's borne the penalty for our sin upon himself, the penalty which we justly deserved. What we see here is that his resurrection tells us that he did that for the sake of an eternal kingdom and that he is now the ruler of God's kingdom. Now, of course, uh, many people just simply do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And in one sense, that's quite understandable. Um, There have, of course, been many times when people have appeared to be dead when they weren't. And we've heard of some interesting stories of people In the in the mortuary, in the hospital, um, coming walking out, uh, there are times when people have been misdiagnosed as being dead when they've actually been quite alive. They've been resuscitated, but Jesus had been horrifically beaten. Jesus had had nails driven through his wrists and through his feet. Jesus had been hung up on a large cross where he hung, where he was crucified, where his body uh, slumped down and where he used his legs to push himself up so that his lungs could expand, otherwise he would asphyxiate. We saw on Friday that he gave up his spirit, that he breathed his last that Roman soldiers came and they checked him out. You see, they had to bring down the, the bodies of the three men who were ex- executed on that day. They had to bring them down earlier because it was this, the Sabbath was approaching and the, to keep these bodies up on the cross during the, the Sabbath would have been quite impure. So they had to speed up the killing process. They went around to the other two criminals that were crucified with him and they smashed their legs broke their legs so that they couldn't push up, so that they couldn't expand their lungs, so that they would asphyxiate. When they got to Jesus, they didn't see any need to do that because he was dead. But just for good measure, they thrust a, thrust a spear into the side of his body and just watched, watched the liquid, the fluid, just drain out of him. We're not talking about resuscitation. We're talking about someone who was stone-cold dead and buried, and then raised back to life. And so it is very reasonable for people not to believe this because dead people do not rise. That's our experience, isn't it? Unless, of course, there's something very different about this one particular man And we would want to see the evidence for that. We would want to see the evidence such as an empty tomb and such as a living Jesus. Now, there's no doubt that the tomb was empty. The uh, Roman soldiers found that the tomb was empty. They went to the Jewish Jewish religious uh, leaders and reported that. The Jewish religious leaders wanted to cover up the whole issue and so they bribed the soldiers into saying that they actually fell asleep on the job and that uh, whilst they were snoozing, that the disciples obviously came and broke into the tomb. They broke the seal on the tomb. They must have rolled it away and they've taken the body of Jesus and they've stolen Jesus. It's not likely, is it? Not likely for Roman soldiers to fall asleep on the job. And if they did, even if they did, to admit to it, And it's not likely also because it would have been very easy to simply then go and arrest the disciples and recover the body. And that would have extinguished any talk of resurrection if the authorities had just come up with the body and said, here's the body, we found the body and we've put the disciples in the prison. But they didn't come up with the body because there there was no body. They didn't have a body to come up with. There was no body to show And then, of course, there's the even bigger problem of the living Jesus. Um, People think that uh, to believe in resurrection means that you have to shut down your brain and take a mystical leap of faith into the realm of irrationality. And they say, because that's obviously what the disciples did. I mean, surely these were just vulnerable men, men who were on the precipice of of belief, men who would uh, uh, jump at anything, who would grasp hold of anything which gave them hope, But that too is not the case. They were as skeptical as anybody. Have a look at verses nine through to 11. When the ladies, the women came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the 11, because Judas isn't there anymore, and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seem to them like nonsense. You can imagine these fellows. The Women have come to them and the women are all talking, bubbling over, talking about what's happened and the disciples are saying, calm down, ladies. Uh, We've all been through a pretty rough time. You're all hyped up emotionally. You must be mistaken. But seeing is believing. And in verse 12, when Peter then ran to the tomb, He saw with his own eyes that the tomb was empty. Friends, the disciples were not gullible fools. They were not gullible fools, nor were they thieves in the night. They were just as surprised and as taken aback as anybody was. In fact, if you glance over at verses 36 to 37, you'll see that when Jesus did appear to them, that they were startled and they were frightened. They thought that they'd seen a ghost. They didn't expect him to rise from the dead. They weren't on the precipice of belief. How can we know that Jesus truly did rise from the dead? There's no security video footage. Uh, All that we can do is study the evidence. The evidence of the empty tomb, which has never been explained properly. And the evidence of all of the, the written eyewitness accounts of people who met jesus who met the risen lord jesus christ in 1 corinthians chapter 15 in the church in corinth there was some question about resurrection that was being discussed and in 1 corinthians chapter 15 the apostle paul writing 20 years after the actual resurrection of jesus he makes the point that many people saw the risen Jesus. Jesus appeared to lots of people. First of all, as we've seen here, he appeared to Peter. And then uh, then to the 12. Uh, On one occasion, Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. And Paul makes the point that uh, some of these people have actually fallen asleep, which is a nice Christian way of talking about going to heaven. But he said most of them are still alive. And so if you've got any doubts, you can, you can go and talk to them. You can ask them, ask them, what did they see? Did they really see the resurrected Jesus? And they'll tell you, yes. And then he appeared to James and all of the apostles. Now, some people, of course, say, well, you know, <clears throat> maybe they were all hallucinating. <laughs> they thought they saw Jesus, but they didn't really see Jesus. Highly unlikely. That all of these people would be hallucinating and having the same hallucinogenic experience? They would all be seeing the same thing, five hundred of them all at the same time? It's interesting to note, isn't it, that the reported appearances of Jesus stopped after forty days. Why do you think that might be? Now of course someone might say, Well, that's that's all very well, but all of the people that you're talking about here, they're all believers you know, if, if you really want me to believe that Jesus was rose, had risen from the dead, um, show me someone who's not biased. Uh, if a non-believer said that they met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, then, that would be credible evidence, then I might believe. Friends, what do you think happens to a non-believer when they meet the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, and then he appeared to me. When Saul, the Pharisee on the road to Damascus, was confronted by the risen Jesus speaking to him from heaven, his Jesus-hating, church-persecuting world was blown apart. It's a dangerous idea, isn't it? It's a dangerous idea, this idea of resurrection. When uh, Tony Jones asked Peter Hitchens to explain himself, listen to what he said. Why is it dangerous? Well, I quote because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. Wouldn't you love to be able to say that kind of answer off the top of your head on national television? We saw a couple of weeks ago that uh, the Lord Jesus promised, don't be afraid to talk, open your mouth, because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Let me unpack that. The resurrection of Jesus is followed by the ascension of Jesus to heaven, uh, just as Daniel's dream foretold. It tells us that the universe is not meaningless, that the universe is not uh, an existence without any purpose, without any creator, that it is not chaotic, that it is not meaningless because Jesus is now king that Jesus is the ruler of God's everlasting dominion. The resurrection tells us that there is justice, that there is true justice in our world, and we see that in two ways. First of all, the resurrection tells us that God's just punishment for our sin has been fully served on Jesus. That is, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has done the job. The death of God the Son, the one who had been in perfect fellowship with God the Father for all of eternity, the separation of the Father and the Son on the cross and in the grave, has done what nothing else could ever do, has paid the full, complete, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The job is done. It is sufficient. And therefore, there is no more need for Jesus to continue to be punished for our sin by being separated from the Father for any longer. And so he's been raised from the dead. Resurrection shows that the death has done the job. That's justice. Justice has been served. Secondly, the resurrection shows us that uh, that sacrifice only applies to those who put their trust in Jesus. Uh, In Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul was in Greece, in Athens, there was a crowd of people around and he preached to a crowd of Athenians. Uh, He said to the men of Athens, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising this person from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof that there will in the future be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, a day when God will do away with all of the evil, all of the sin, all of the God-rebellion of this world. And he's proven that by raising Jesus from the dead. So the idea here, friends, is place your trust in Jesus now. Uh, Better to have him as your saviour than as your future judge. There is justice in the world. The resurrection of Jesus as as, uh, Hitchens says, turns the universe into a place where there is justice and there is also hope. And hope is very powerful. It gives us hope because it tells us that death has been defeated. Uh, the, The power that that Satan had over us, which was the guilt of our sin, which was going to send us to to hell for all of eternity, that that guilt of our sin has been dealt with. And so death has been swallowed up in victory. Now, most people are frightened of death. It's not something which we talk about uh, a great deal, is it? Um, Woody Allen uh, once said, I'm not... uh, Frightened of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Uh, Thank you very much. But we're all frightened of death. We don't really want to talk about death. But the resurrection of Jesus takes that fear of death and it replaces it with hope, with a certain hope, with a sure and certain hope. The hope, the knowledge that the resurrected Jesus has actually gone ahead of us and that he's prepared a place, and that he will take us, to put our trust in him to be with him forever. Don't you love that picture of heaven in Revelation chapter 21, where we're told that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, because It won't actually be us who's passed away. It'll be this sinful world, this old order of things that has passed away. It's an incredibly dangerous idea, this idea of the resurrection of Jesus. It's incredibly dangerous because it endangers a whole lot of things. It endangers the way that we live our lives. It endangers our selfishness, it endangers our our greed, it endangers our materialism which tells us that all there is to life is this life so therefore make the most of it. It endangers the grip which the evil one held over us because it frees us. It frees us to stop living for ourselves. And to start trusting and living for him who loved us so much that he gave his life up for us, that he died for us, and that he rose again. That's the Easter message. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much that uh, you are in control of this world, that the universe is not meaningless, and that you've shown that to us by raising your son Jesus from the dead, for he is now the everlasting ruler, the king of your dominion. And Father, we thank you that he's, he's brought us to be with him by dying on the cross to break the power of sin over our lives, the the power that was taking us to hell, the power of the evil one. Father, we uh, thank you that there will be a day of justice when sin will finally be rid uh, from this realm. Father, we thank you that we can look forward to that heavenly hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.
0: Service this morning by standing and singing an old hymn that I didn't know, but I knew the tune, and you all will too. Uh- <laughs>